Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody is having a great St. Patrick's Day. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Biden administration details its $842 billion defense budget request, and lawmakers are responding as they balk on increasing the borrowing limit. The banking crisis in the United States and what it means for the Federal Reserve's approach to fighting inflation with more interest rate hikes as Washington's borrowing ability is constrained. A Russian jet collided with a U.S. Reaper unmanned aircraft operating in international airspace over the Black Sea, forcing the reconnaissance plane to ditch uh, in the Black Sea as Poland and Slovakia agree to supply uh, some 16 MiG-29 jets to Ukraine as Kiev turns uh, Bakhmut into a giant meat grinder for Russian troops. Xi Jinping will visit Moscow next week as Beijing ships, quote, hunting rifles and body armor uh, to Russia as Hungary slow rolls Sweden and Finland's NATO membership. Florida governor and expected presidential candidate Ron DeSantis parrots Russia's talking point, saying Ukraine is a local territorial squabble that's not vital to U.S. interests. U.S., Australian, and British leaders have released their plan to uh, equip Australia with nuclear-powered attack submarines. We're going to discuss that. This as new leadership assumes power in Beijing, including a new uh, premier and foreign minister as Seoul and Tokyo improve their relationship and Pyongyang tests a new missile. Israel's president uh, warns of a potential civil war over Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's drive to undermine the country's Supreme Court. And there are questions about uh, the future of Emmanuel Macron as France's president uh, in the wake of a uh, very necessary if controversial move to raise uh, the nation's retirement age to 64. Joining us to discuss all of this and more is our roundtable, Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is with the Center for a New American Security and a co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, good morning all. Happy uh, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and thanks so very much for joining us. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air and naval combat coverage and our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual aerospace Warfare Symposium uh, was sponsored by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And our coverage of South by Southwest was sponsored by Bell and Leonardo DRS. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Dove, uh, particularly, thank you for joining us uh, from Suleimania in Kurdistan. And, and Jim, uh, you are back instructing with Sciences Po. Uh, so thanks very much for joining us from Paris and want to get a little bit of a view uh, of the street uh, and how uh, everything is going. Michael, start us off. Right. We have, uh, you know, what's the status on debt limit uh, talks uh, and also then give us your take uh, on uh, the bank failures. Silicon Valley Bank uh, failed. Signature Bank has failed. Uh, right. First Republic had to be saved. And there's a concern about how all of this is going to affect, you know, in my view, national security. If, for example, America's debt positioning uh, and ability to borrow more money is constrained in part because lawmakers won't raise the borrowing limit. Walk us through how all of this is conjoined and what it means. 
Well, uh, there really hasn't been much uh, progress made on, on that summit still. Uh, as we know, McCarthy, uh, the speaker, uh, last week blasted Biden's budget as not being serious, but yet uh, the Republicans have not put forth their own serious alternative. And it's becoming more and more clear that it's really virtually impossible to budget the, to balance the budget over 10 years, which the Republicans want to do if they're not going to address uh, Social Security, uh, Medicare, and revenue. And in fact, you know, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget uh, came out earlier this week and said that Republicans would have to make cuts so large that it would require the equivalent of ending all non-defense appropriations and eliminating the entire Medicaid program just to get it to balance. And more importantly, you know, the bipartisan or I guess nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office uh, explained uh, earlier this week as well why it's not possible to balance the budget over a decade without altering Social Security, Medicare, defense, veterans programs, while also making permanent the Trump tax cuts, which the Republicans uh, want to do. So, you know, if anything, I feel we've taken some steps backwards instead of forwards here. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, you know, in the back the backdrop here are these bank failures. So uh, over last weekend, uh, there was a lot of action because Silicon Valley Bank had failed. And that one's really significant because so many uh, tech startups and AI companies uh, bank there. Um, and uh, there was a feeling over the weekend that this could set back American innovation uh, by 10 years if the government didn't step in. And uh, over the weekend, the Defense Innovation Unit started drawing up contingency plans and how to deal, uh, how to help these defense startups if the government hadn't stepped in. Uh, and they had planned, you know, one of the first things they planned to do was start calling these startup companies uh, that they worked with to see if they had to halt work. And if they did, to try and match these companies with commercial capital providers. But you know, fortunately, they didn't have to execute these plans because the government uh, did step in. Now, that didn't stop you know, the partisan wrangling on Capitol Hill. I mean, first, on the Republican side, uh, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee uh, slammed the bank as being the most woke, one of the most woke banks in the country, uh, which is total nonsense. And even if they were woke, I don't understand what they had to do with right. the, the bank's decision to buy U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, and then, of course, we have Donald Trump Jr. in the background saying that no bank's failed under Trump when, in fact, 15 banks uh, collapsed under Trump. And now Elizabeth Warren is taking aim at both the Silicon Valley Bank CEO and the Federal Reserve Chairman and the Senate Banking Committee Chairman, Sherrod Brown, uh, is attacking his Democratic colleagues uh, for being weak on, on bank regulation. But I will say, you know, Chairman Patrick Henry, who chairs the Financial Services Committee, uh, came out praising uh, the Fed and the FDIC uh, for adequately using the powers afforded to them to, you know, to forestall this crisis. And as a result, Russ Vaught, who was OMB chairman under uh, Donald Trump, we've talked about him on previous podcasts because he's trying to shape this draconian budget debate, came out attacking Patrick McHenry and saying he's lost all confidence with him, which frankly, I think for him was an unwise move because McHenry is one of McCarthy's uh, most trusted confidants. Right. Uh, it, it certainly is an interesting environment. And we were at uh, South by Southwest uh, when companies were experiencing this uh, in real time with folks asking about how they make payroll. Uh, and, and fortunately, by the end uh, of uh, the period, I mean, one CEO, uh, you know, mentioned to me that he started business after business without ever borrowing a cent, uh, right, doing it with investment capital, and for the first time had to sign for a bank loan, uh, in part because, you know, he said, the most important thing isn't making money, it's keeping my people around, absent which I'm, I'm you know, there's no way for us to do what we did. So you saw that a lot of people were very passionate about keeping the skill sets uh, together uh, that allowed them uh, to be uh, innovative. 
we've got a lot uh, to, to try uh, to cover. And so we're going to launch into the budget part of the discussion, because obviously we've got to discuss the war uh, as well as, uh, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that's going uh, on uh, in uh, Asia. Dove, uh, why don't you start us off? And I want to kind of go around the horn and have Michael uh, anchor us uh, with sort of the broader uh, political view. But, uh, you know, you're a former uh, comptroller, uh, Dove. We have greater details than we did when we spoke uh, last week, where we had kind of the top line number and obviously a lot of criticism about it. It came in lower. Some senior folks in the administration have been uh, honest uh, that the number was lower than they had expected. Uh, and that they need uh, resources to cover more of their priorities uh, as we seek to really build up our capabilities, not just against Russia, but better deter China. From your standpoint, what were the big things that that jumped out at you? And then Jim, want to get your take from a Europe perspective. Patrick, your take uh, uh, from an Asian per, uh, Asia perspective. Go ahead, Duff. Well, the first thing is that um, this banking crisis may not be over. Uh, I worked in a bank in London in the mid-70s and there was a rash of crashes all over Europe. Uh, these things tend not to be easily stopped. And the reason I, I mentioned that in the context of discussing defense is that, uh, again, you're gonna see pressure on the defense industry and particularly the smaller, uh, the smaller defense startups uh, that could really suffer if this thing continues because not everybody banked only at SVB. Uh, so there's that. Then there's the question of what's the Fed going to do? Because if the Fed decides that it can't raise interest rates right now, um, then how does that how does that all work out? And how does that affect uh, inflation? Uh, and if inflation gets worse, that just hurts the defense budget even more, because in any event, inflation in the defense sector is higher than it is in the CPI, the consumer price index, which tends to be what everybody measures inflation by. So that's sort of a super macro problem that affects the defense budget. Then you've got the fact that at least some people in the Pentagon not only are saying that uh, they fell short, but are anticipating that there will be more money coming from Congress that's going to be much harder this year than it was last year. I don't know if Michael disagrees with me on that, um, but it's not just pressure from the, the Republican right that, that's leading to that. And then finally, you don't even know if you're going to get a budget at all. Everybody's saying the, but this budget is dead on arrival. How long would this continuing resolution go on? And then there's actually what's inside the budget, which, again, they're trading off um, essentially of the equipment we have now in order to have better equipment later. And that's a longstanding debate. And of course, many members of Congress don't want to see certain aircraft like, say, the A-10, which has been around forever, uh, phased out. Uh, and so you've got that. The biggest winner, by the way, in the budget was the Navy. Uh, that has the biggest increase. Uh, the biggest loser was the Army. I think it's going down to about 435,000 people. Um, and uh, and so, you know, there are going to be people pushing for a change in that. Uh, but as I say, uh, the first question is, will there be a budget at all? Uh, and what will be the story with inflation? It's interesting. The Navy is getting the resources it's getting after, you know, from from my standpoint. And I think some analysts would say not having made some of the right investment calls and seeking to hit the reset button. And at the end of the day, you get bad behavior when when you get more bad behavior when when bad behavior is not 
uh, sort of punished somehow. Uh, and then I want to re reiterate one other thing. I know we discussed it last week, but it really is important, which is the uh, the money for the Pacific Initiative uh, really fell short of what Aquilino was asking for. And so you have to ask yourself, how does that play in Beijing? Uh, and again, Patrick might want to add something to that. But it just seems to me that here we are uh, arguing whether China should get the, the highest concern in spite of Ukraine. And yet, when it comes to funding the funds that would allow us to argue, yeah, we, we're spending money on deterring China, the funds just don't seem to be there. Uh, indeed. And, and when it comes to uh, banking uh, crises, right, they, they do have a tendency of uh, swamping, right? I mean, a whole bunch of banks came in to rescue First Republic, and there is some question about whether or not, right, that does stabilize the system because, you know, all sorts of stories about all sorts of other mid as well as large size bank about having, uh, you know, bond exposure uh, and the like. And what does it mean? And that's one of the reasons why SVB um, failed. Uh, let's quickly uh, go around the horn. And since uh, Dove mentioned uh, Lung Aquilino. Patrick, let's go with you, then Jim, and then uh, Michael, give us your sort of congressional sense on on where we stand and, and how this is all uh, likely uh, to unfold. Go ahead, Patrick. Well, I'll just pick up where Dove left off. Um, yes, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative needs much more funding, not less. And it has to be a bipartisan agreement uh, to convince uh, Taiwan that we are going to be committed to the defense if they are attacked unprovoked. Um, and if we're serious about a potential D-Day over Taiwan in this decade, it's not enough to have you know the, the largest nominal budget package put forward by the White House. You've got to show that you're going to be defending the most uh, sort of acute flashpoint uh, that you're trying to deter. What is integrated deterrence about if you're not really providing um, loans, not just grants to Taiwan? Yes, they've got a they're a wealthy uh, country relatively. But they've only got a $20 billion defense budget, and that's up 15 20% in the last year alone. There's so much they can do alone. They need uh, serious support. So that comes down uh, to the Taiwan scenario and being serious about it. Meanwhile, Japan is spending more, Korea is spending more. Australia is in a, a, a budget debate right now because of the AUKUS uh, uh, sticker shock uh, of what is going to be a long-term debate in Australia about uh, buying submarines and spending so much money on them. Um, so we have to help our allies uh, get through this, just as we need money in our shipyards. We need more manned and unmanned aircraft. Uh, we need to fill those inventories for a possible inventory war, war of attrition, uh, to deter that war from breaking out by showing that we do have the capacity to do that. So that's that's really the, uh, the key concern here. And yet many things to praise about what the White House has submitted in terms of it is a it is a strategy driven budget. Um, they are doing what they're saying, um, but the question is: is it sufficient? And I think you've got to have to pass the the Taiwan test if you're serious about integrated deterrence in this decade for Taiwan scenarios. It's not not enough. And and let me just uh, quickly ask you one clarifying question, right? I mean, the the problem people have, and and by the way, in any other time, I think many people would be applauding this budget. Uh, even at its size, even if it, you know, uh, the, the trouble is the Chinese are spending an awful lot more money. And the concern is that the risk window is actually more immediate than farther away, right? I mean, is, would you agree with that, that 
that we seem to be making some of these upgrades and delivering these capabilities in the mid 2030s, whereas folks have this uh, view and this concern that the window really is two to five years in terms of that, uh, the, the need for more pressing deterrent, in part because of a whole demographic reasons that may drive the Chinese to miscalculate sooner. No, that's exactly right, Vago. You don't know how much is enough, but you want to err on the side of caution. And we do know that this is a window of vulnerability. We do know that with the election coming up in Taiwan in nine months, a lot of things could happen here. Uh, and China could miscalculate and think that they have an opportunity to press forward. Certainly, Xi Jinping is building that defense capability now. So if we don't uh, respond seriously uh, to help Taiwan and to work with others, including Japan, then uh, we're increasing the risk. And that's a risk we really do not want to have uh, increase because a, a conflict in Asia over Taiwan would be it's so severe, it's, it's hard to uh, sort of exaggerate. Jim, are you satisfied uh, now sitting at your Sion's Po perch uh, over there in Paris with the European elements of this budget? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, in talking to my class, uh, I, I certainly got the impression that uh, there's not a lot of, of navel gazing over here, whether it's in a class or whether it's in uh, governments uh, there sitting here in the alliance. There's not a lot of navel gazing and d digging deep into the U.S. budget at this stage. I think what capitals in uh, Europe have been talking about are, is what DeSantis said. I mean, that was, you know, quite a uh, wake up call that uh, it might not necessarily be smooth sailing if there is a Republican like DeSantis who's elected in a couple of years. I think that really sent shockwaves that uh, what was thought to be confined to a, a group of, of, of uh, extremists in the House of Representatives, in fact, has now got into the bloodstream. Um, and a, uh, one of the, uh, you know, more credible presidential candidates for the Republicans is spouting that stuff off. So if anything was talked about in terms of the budget in, 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 the, in Europe, I, I don't think there was anything in there that, that would send the kind of shock uh, waves into capitals here as much as DeSantis did. And, um, and, and I think they know also, particularly the more savvy capitals here, that uh, this is just the beginning of the U.S. process and not to draw any conclusions. But I don't think they saw anything, at least in this initial take, that disturbed them as much as DeSantis did. Uh, in, in, indeed. Michael, uh, your sense, uh, right? I mean, there was a very powerful bipartisan backlash to what uh, Ron DeSantis uh, said. He was mirroring, actually, you know, Kremlin talking points virtually identically. Uh, what was uh, the sense and, and sort of the broader response from your standpoint? Uh, and if you want to also give us sort of budget reaction as well, uh, that'd be great. Okay, sure. Let me, let me start with, with, with the budget. Um, so, as you know, the House of Representatives is out of session this week and doesn't come back actually until next Wednesday night. But I, I did talk to three different congressmen on, on the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, and, you know, I think they're still really learning the details of this budget. But I think, um, you know, Dove is correct. I do agree with him that getting more money this year will be difficult. I don't think it's impossible, but it will be difficult. And I think the first thing they have to do is figure out if they got more money, what would they spend it on, right? And I think that, um, you know, first of all, there is, uh, Congress seems to be pleased that, you know, the Defense Department, for example, is asking for a lot more money for munitions. I mean, the, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine it revealed a lot of our vulnerability in our industrial base, especially when it comes to missiles and munitions. So the department's asking Congress to fund multi-year uh, purchases of these weapons, uh, similar to what they do now for aircraft and ship programs. But by doing it for munitions and missiles, it will um, hopefully save money and ensure a steady 
steady flow of production and the munitions budget is up uh, 6 billion more than it was last year. We also have the largest increases ever for procurement and research and development. The procurement budget request is 145 billion and RDT&E is 170 billion. And on top of that, this is the largest space budget request at uh, 33, uh, over 33 billion. Uh, but, you know, Dove mentions too, that the Navy got the biggest increase. I think we're gonna see the most fireworks when it comes to the Navy budget, because despite getting the biggest increase, uh, their plan is to build nine ships, but retire 11. And, you know, the lawmakers are going to express extreme frustration at the Navy's just inability to grow despite these record setting budgets. So, um, you know, I think we still have a long way to go. A lot of hearings are going to start next week and uh, and we still haven't seen the unfunded requirements list. Uh, but I think, you know, as we talk about cutting the non-defense, I still think adding to defense is going to be a challenge. Now, as far as, um, you know, Ukraine's concerned, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I was also equally, you know, distressed by uh, the comments made by uh, Ron DeSantis. But you know, Senator Wicker, who's the ranking Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, you know, took a, a quick shot at DeSantis after we had that incident with the Russian jet, you know, colliding with our MQ9, uh, you know, saying that this incident should serve as a wake-up call to isolationists in the United States that it's in our national interest to treat Putin uh, as a threat that he, that he truly is. So. Uh, I think, and we also see that, that, that since McConnell's been absent, you know, McConnell was injured in a fall last week, and he's usually, you know, a strong voice of, of reason on this issue, and he, he would have been very outspoken on Ukraine on the floor, and several senators are lamenting the fact that he hasn't been here uh, to speak out. But despite that, we'd see, we, we've seen that letter that was circulating in the House, uh, for example, supporting F-16s for Ukraine. Now there's one also circulating in the Senate led by Senator Mark Kelly on the Armed Services Committee that has strong bipartisan support. So uh, I also you know, say that a lot of what uh, candidates say on the campaign trail is different than what they say when they actually govern. And we still have a long way to go in this in this presidential election. Could I jump in here, though? Indeed. Because, yes, yes, go ahead. Uh, you know, uh, Michael's right in the American context. We all know that people say stuff in the campaign and it changes. But if you look at the Saudi reaction to Biden saying they're a pariah state, they haven't gotten over it. Everybody at this conference that I was just at out here in Kurdistan, they're all still talking about DeSantis. And what and, you know, you're, nowadays it's not just for your base. The whole world hears you and Putin's hearing him and she is hearing him. And so that's a real problem that you cannot easily solve by saying, well, you know, it's just for the primary season and all that. Um, I would I would point out, right, John Kirby, uh, the national security, the White House's uh, director of strategic communications uh, on the NSC, uh, former Pentagon spokesman, former Navy spokesman, former State Department spokesman. I mean, it's very well it's it's vital to bear in mind his singular message. There are no more talking to audiences. It's one audience. You can't say different things to different people and hope uh, and it not actually cloud your message and become very complicating. Uh, and I couldn't agree with them more on that. And so when the domestic political scene transmits insanity, uh, the rest of the world receives that insanity or, or receives that uh, message, uh, good, good, bad or otherwise. Um, Jim, uh, let me uh, uh, take the conversation to how to respond, right? I mean, everything about Russia, Ukraine, uh, and our response to it has been to telegraph the right things to Beijing. Uh, Russians um, 
you know, whether it was through sloppiness, uh, it, it looks like it was sloppy. They were trying to ha- harass, as as Russians regularly do, um, uh, a, an American drone in international airspace. There's a sense that, well, it sort of doesn't matter because drones, you know, exist to gallantly give their lives in the service of their country. Uh, on the other hand, it's also American state property to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Uh, it was downed. Um, how does... Washington need to respond to this uh, to transmit the right message. Uh, and and Patrick, let me ask you about this. Right, the the Chinese are watching very quite carefully every single thing that we do uh, against Russia. They're seeing, for example, the inefficacy of sanctions because we're not tightening them the right way. Turkey is violating those sanctions. Gulf nations are violating those sanctions. Right, I mean, equipment is getting to the Russians, uh, and computer chips and and all manner of sanctioned equipment is making it to Russia. Uh, through our mutual allies. Uh, ultimately, Jim, what's the right way to respond to this drone incident? Well, I think it's there's a there's a right way to respond and there's a wrong way to respond as well. And I think there is, I think I think a lot of people are saying that um, what we don't want to do is to over respond to this. But I think it's one thing we should really make be clear about is that this was a routine flight. Uh, of this drone, uh, and I, I'm, I'm certain that this was something that the Russians had planned for uh, earlier. This wasn't just a one-off kind of uh, opportunistic uh, bit of harassment. I think they had those two jets ready to go, and I think they had some tactics in mind, uh, such as dumping fuel. I think the drone was was getting very close into a sensitive area to the Russians, and so I think they were laying in wait. I think, in a sense, it was like an ambush. Uh, and they went in and they really harassed it at a level that uh, we haven't seen uh, as this bad. I mean, that I've been able to tell. This has been something that uh, what those two planes did really took it up a notch. So, uh, so, and and I think you're right too. I think the the, the downing of that uh, of that drone. I'm I'm thinking it wasn't on purpose either. I think it was sloppy uh, pilot a pilot there who got caught up and got clipped by that by that propeller. Uh, but it had to be ditched by the by the folks that were piloting it uh, back at the uh, ground station. So it so it went into the drink. So how do you respond? I think what you don't do is send up uh, drones with uh, F-16s flying, you know, flying escort. I think that's uh, that's not necessarily where we are now. But I think I think maybe the next response is to send a P-8, something that's a manned aircraft. Uh, so that takes it to a whole different level as well. And let's see what they do with a manned aircraft. Uh, but um, but I think what we we what we don't do though is uh, we, we've been fencing like this forever in, in in various contexts between the U.S. and the Soviet Union or Russia. Uh, this isn't that this type of thing isn't so so new. And I don't think we we need to get ourselves into a tit for tat at a higher level. But I think what we can do is say number one, keep those. Uh, those flights going. Number two, let's make an unmanned flight next time and see what happens. But what we don't do is overreact. And what we don't do is stop doing those flights. We have to keep moving forward. Um, and But we don't, at this stage, have to respond in such a way that that, that we, we make it worse uh, for ourselves. I think we've got to be steady. But let's try man flight next time and see what happens. Um, uh, Patrick, uh, your sense, given that the Chinese are watching all of this, what's the right way uh, to progress? And I should say that we have two former uh, naval officers weighing in here. So that was uh, that was a good uh, move. Moving to a P-8, I think, is uh, an inspired step. Uh, uh, Jim, go ahead, Patrick. 
Well, it is an inspired step because uh, there is a difference between how our adversaries are treating drones versus uh, manned aircraft. Uh, and uh, they're going to be more aggressive against drones, period. And we're going to also see more dangerous harassment of our and in, in interceptions of all of our assets uh, around Russia and China. That's just going to continue. That's the trend. So we need to both take tactical measures in terms of how we deal with these platforms and protect them, uh, and yet carry on the missions, not back away, uh, and also political. And I think there, that's what I would add, is that um, I think the Wall Street Journal says we should sell long-range missiles to Ukraine. I don't know if that's the system, but we should certainly be providing arms to our allies and partners uh, Ukraine in the case of Europe, but in the case of Asia, um, let's go back to Taiwan. Let's give give more arms uh, to Taiwan and to our allies uh, in, in the region as well. That would be the appropriate response. And the message for China will be, uh, if you take aggressive action, then we will respond in ways that you will not like. And one last thought here is that while it may have been an accident in terms of uh, taking down uh, the, the drone the way it was taken down near Crimea, um, the reality is it is a Russian gift to Xi Jinping as he prepares to go to Moscow, um, it basically saying, look, um, you Americans took down a Chinese spy balloon. Yes, over your territory. Well, our rules in the revisionist camp is that if you fly near us, even in international space, we'll take down your surveillance platforms. And I And I really think that is something that Xi Jinping is watching. So we do have to respond uh, very strongly to this in terms of our political response to allies and partners, as well as uh, making sure that we're coming up with innovative tactical approaches to carry on the mission. Dove, your sense? Um, very much agree with what Patrick just said. One of the things that I haven't seen too many people write about, but uh, again, I heard it out here from various folks, the Russians, of course, are arguing that since Crimea is theirs, anything near Crimea was in their air defense airspace, which sounds an awful lot like what China does in the South China Sea, for example. And so uh, given that, it's critically important that we continue to demonstrate that, no, we don't recognize Crimea at all. Uh, and therefore, this is international airspace. And if it's anybody's airspace that isn't international, it's Ukraine's airspace. So this is something that, you know, again, if we're going to send P-8s or any kind of manned aircraft or drones, even, uh, we've got to watch and see how uh, Putin reacts to that, because he may uh, try this again simply because he wants to reconfirm that Crimea is his. The other problem with all of this, quite frankly, and this goes to the Xi-Putin discussions, is there is more and more talk, not just amongst right-wing Republicans or Tucker Carlson's and those kinds of folks, but even from General Milley, that you know we really need to be negotiating. And if Putin is sitting in uh, and watching this, he says, yeah, great, I'll negotiate. I want to have all of the Black Sea. I want to have which includes Sevastopol, for example, or Odessa. Uh, I want to have uh, those four districts in the Donetsk. And yeah, at that point, I'm ready to talk. And she right. will watch this and say, guess what? The same works for Taiwan. So we've got to be really careful uh, on the one hand to not give in in any way recognition to the airspace that Putin says is his, but on the other hand, to be very careful as well about talking about negotiations, because if we do, we are going behind Zelensky's back. 
And we already did that with Ashraf Ghani. However you think he was as a president, we did go behind his back in Afghanistan, and that didn't work out terribly well. No, we we shook them, uh, not to be too blunt uh, on this program, and we ended up bearing uh, and reaping the bitter fruit from it. Exactly. One uh, quick intermediate point. I want to talk about the F-16s and, and whether or not that's an escalatory step, uh, right? I mean, as she prepares to visit uh, Putin in Moscow. Uh, Jim, the first question I want to ask is how stable is uh, the Macron government uh, at this point? And could we have a change, right? I mean, he is uh, the president pushed through uh, without getting the National Assembly to vote on it. The Senate has rubber stamped it. But there is a sense that uh, now uh, the National Assembly has a brief amount of time to call a vote of no confidence. What happens then? And what happens if Emmanuel Macron, who has come to be a uh, staunch supporter uh, of Ukraine uh, in all of this, is pushed out and replaced by other folks uh, in the French political scene, whether it's Marine Le Pen or Mélenchon or somebody else, who actually... I want to say are Euroskeptics, NATO skeptics, and and certainly, right, I mean, Vladimir Putin has given Le Pen a lot of money. Once Vladimir Putin couldn't give Le Pen money, um, uh, Viktor Orban was giving her money. That money was for a purpose, just like the Russians give Viktor Orban a lot of money. And strangely, he's slow rolling Sweden and Finland now. Is sort of your sense what happens in, in the event that there is a change uh, in in Paris and what that could mean actually for the broader war effort? Because Putin's attitude is, you may have all the watches, I have all the time, not to take sort of a Taliban mentality from this. Well, I think I think uh, in the among the political class here in, in Paris, in the National Assembly, the politicians, I think um, those that are, are saner, saner heads, if you will, I think they're afraid of what might happen as well. And I think, re- remember, I mean, uh, Macron was voted in in large part to keep Marie Le Pen out. And so uh, here we have the, this, this new second term for Macron. And I think some of that same concern about what might follow Macron would keep uh, the vote uh, not uh, leading into a vote of no confidence, but to support Macron. We're going to have to see. We'll, we'll know more in the next 24 hours or so. But um, I think what, what concerned a lot of people last night uh, and earlier this morning was that uh, some of the conservative part of the National Assembly that normally has supported Macron, when they've been similar threats like this, I mean, this isn't something that's new uh, with Macron or even the, um, you know, the governments before his. Um, but the concern was that some of these conservative supporters had said, "Well, I'm against what he's doing too," because you know what what's being said here is there's some that hate what's happening because they don't want the retirement age to be raised, but there's others who uh, understand and uh, that in fact that needs to be done for the economy and this type of thing, but they don't like the politics. They don't like the fact that um, in some sense, the uh, presidency is jamming uh, this through the National Assembly and there's not a lot of of, uh, support verbally coming out of the government. It's kind of being done in what is seen as some reckless disregard about what the impact is having. And so, uh, you know, so there are people that are really upset with Macron who normally support him. Uh, but they're upset now because of the bad politics of this. They call it bad politics. He's not doing the right thing. But at the end of the day, they don't want to see Le Pen or something happen where the government falls and they have even a worse situation. So so while people are unhappy that normally support him, uh, they're not necessarily going to vote to bring the government down. So uh, that's that's kind of what the, talking, the talk is right now. We'll just have to see 
uh, what what happens in fact. Uh, so so you know it could be a hot it could be a hot weekend. <laughs> <laughs> in the streets around here, but let's just see what happens. Before we continue our conversation, uh, urge our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Canvas Ships, hosted by uh, our very own Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello, uh, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace with uh, JJ Gertler uh, and uh, yours truly. I should also point out that GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, also sponsors uh, our Cavus Ships uh, podcast. Uh, Jim, uh, very quickly, um, the fighters, uh, we now have uh, Poland uh, sort of open the door for MiG-29s to go to the Ukrainians in a matter of days. Slovakia following up uh, and saying we're going to send a dozen of our MiG-29s, certainly very important for the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian Air Force. You know, they had an end strength of about 120 airplanes. We heard from uh, the U.S. Air Force's Europe commander that's been reduced to about 60 airplanes. Uh, so they could certainly use that. A lot of debate about whether this opens the door. More broadly, has the alliance thought through how Vladimir Putin responds to this uh, ultimately, right? I mean, at some point, there is going to be a trigger. I don't think we should self-deter by any means uh, because Russia is the aggressor in this. But how does this play out? What are the next steps of it? My view is as long as they don't use those jets to directly bomb Moscow, I'm good with that. Well, I think that's right. I, I, but I, I think we're, we're also, uh, there, there's, there's a couple of other factors here. One is that the idea of providing aircraft to um, uh, to Ukraine has been around from the very beginning. It just it's, you know that was one of the first deals where Poland was going to provide aircraft if the U.S. would backfill with F-16s, and we said no, 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 uh, that's not what we're going to be. That was last year. But what's happened since is two things. One is that um, the Poles now know because they've done this before, and this, the playbook has now been established that if you want something to go to Ukraine. You got to start with Poland in this case, uh, like with the tanks. You start saying, well, we're going to provide tanks. Uh, and no matter what you say, Germany, we're going to be providing tanks, et cetera. And you begin this bandwagon. And we saw with the tanks, uh, the, the, the uh, challengers from the UK and the AMX out of France, pretty soon you got this bandwagon. Pretty soon the Germans came on board because the Americans were going to come on board. And so now we, we're beginning to see a Leopard 2 tank flow happening. And I think Poland, in terms of aircraft, they've now uh, using that same playbook here saying, OK, well, look, we're going to provide the MiG-29s. Uh, we're not going to get we're, we know we're not going to get backfill here. Uh, we're going to provide some. And then Slovakia comes right on in behind them. And um, and so I think there's an expectation that maybe they'll be out of the France or out of the UK, where both countries have also talked about aircraft and have started some training, I think. Um, that they might start a bandwagon uh, with aircraft. Uh, the U.S. Uh, is holding back still, as you know, but but we're dealing with F-16s when it comes to the U.S. and that's a that's a different um, different challenge for Ukraine because Ukraine knows the MiG-29. This is not going to be uh, something that's going to be hard for them to absorb. The F-16, there is an issue there, uh, and, and that's going to keep us uh, a bit slower in terms of making a decision about whether to provide F-16s. And in terms of Russia looking on this as as a threat. I think MiG 29s. Uh, I don't think they look, they're looking on that as a big escalation. If there was a move to provide a number of F 16s and this type of thing, they might. But we have seen with Putin time and time again that what we thought would be a big red line for him, in fact, uh, was not a big red line for him. And I think it's the same case when it comes to F 16s and certainly with MiG 29s. I can't see that causing 
a big issue uh, for for um, for Putin. Dove? Uh, I agree with that. Uh, I think that one of the mistakes we're making is we're not starting to train these folks in F-16s. Remember also, there are F-16s and F-16s, and we didn't say we were going to give them the most advanced F-16. That's number one. Number two is we're not talking about pulling somebody off the street and throwing them into an F-16. I mean, after all, these guys are pilots. They've demonstrated before that they can uh, adapt very, very quickly. In fact, they use our system. They use systems, not just ours, in the most interesting and, and innovative ways. So uh, I've been hearing, oh, that, that some of our people are saying, well, it'll take a year. It'll take two years. No, it won't. And uh, quite frankly, if, if we keep talking that way, once again, we're telling Putin, just wait us out. On the other hand, if we started training them now, uh, they might get F-16s in six, eight months. Uh, and that would make a, a heck of a difference. Otherwise, I'm, I'm totally with Jim on this. Uh, the F, the MiG-29s aren't going to bomb Moscow. And quite frankly, we wouldn't let the Ukrainians bomb Moscow or anything close to Moscow either. Uh, the, this is a matter of simply providing air cover and air-to-ground capability inside Ukraine, which they desperately need. Um, I would uh, also point out the Ukrainians have been very good they use our intelligence, but they don't use our systems uh, to attack uh, into Russia. So I would point that out. And I would also point out that the Pentagon and other, none other than Bill LaPlante's team, uh, as well as the Pentagon leadership, is studying how Ukraine innovatively fields capabilities uh, and does so very quickly, um, you know, so that we can learn lessons from that, uh, God forbid, uh, in a future uh, conflict. Um, Dove, do you, I just want to quickly get your sense uh, on Hungary's sudden slow roll of Sweden and Finland as uh, Erdogan meets with uh, the Finns, right? I mean, the game is afoot, as they would say. Well, uh, the Turks seem to be ready to let the Finns in. Um, today is March 17th. The uh, Hungarians have been saying March 20th is when they're going to let both of these countries in. Uh, and plus, of course, the uh, Hungarians have also said they don't want to be the last guys out. Uh, and so uh, it it'll be interesting to see whether once again they postpone next week. Um, but of course, uh, as uh, has been pointed out, uh, Orban is is probably Putin's closest friend in NATO, uh, even more perhaps than than Erdogan. So that's going to remain a, a, an open question. And, and again, what the what the Hungarians might do is is do what is what Erdogan is likely to do. Uh, Erdogan has essentially told the Finns, uh, "You're I have no problem with you. I'm going to accept you guys." And he's told the Swedes, "I do have a problem with you." And one of the people I spoke to out here was a former Swedish minister who'd been a minister until October, uh, who who said to me that as far as Sweden's concerned, they did every single thing that Erdogan asked for, and then he just asked for more. Indeed. Um... Let's uh, uh, move on. Patrick, uh, Xi Jinping is uh, going to uh, visit Vladimir Putin. Obviously, news reports, right? I mean, we've, we and a lot of other people have said that it would be a red line, for example, if China were to supply arms. It appears uh, that China is uh, supplying arms at the same time in the wake of uh, the diplomatic success uh, that Beijing had. And, and Wang Yi, in his last appearance as foreign uh, Chinese foreign minister, obviously, um, uh, Quinn Gang, uh, the former uh, U.S. Um, uh, for China's former ambassador to the United States, is now the new foreign minister. Um, 
you know, give, give us give us a sense on what this meeting uh, is going to cover before we go to AUKUS and, and a lot of the other things that are happening in, in Asia, because it's an extraordinarily busy week. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, this is, um, well, first of all, the arming of Russia. Uh, clearly, the Chinese have tried to use uh, dual-use components, uh, to use third parties, like providing uh, drone components to Iran, and those drones have then gone onto the battlefield for Russia. Um, and now we have reports, of course, that indeed from inventories, there were uh, some small arms, and there are certainly components uh, for arms going to Russia. So China wants to exploit all the loopholes possible and go a bit over the line. Uh, but they are stopping short so far of providing uh, finished systems. Now, with Xi Jinping going and saying that he's going to announce new cooperation, expanded cooperation with Russia, they do this every time they meet. Um, this is, by the way, Xi's first overseas trip in this calendar year, and it's happening at a time when there's ferocious uh, diplomacy going on in the Indo-Pacific with the U.S., when you think about uh, Kishida and Yoon summit uh, in Tokyo, uh, when you think about uh, Kirk Campbell in the Pacific Islands this weekend, when you think about um, AUKUS announcement um, and, and discussions with India, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to push back on. And so Xi Jinping desperately wants a different narrative. Uh, he wants to also ride on this idea that he's a peacemaker after this Middle East deal. Uh, but in fact, he really is just wanting to be the power broker. And uh, that's what he wants out of this. And he wants to you know, put a distance between what the West is doing in Indo-Pacific uh, and show that when the pacing challenge of China and the acute challenge of Russia are together, they do have real weight and power. And that's what he's that's what he's banking on. Uh, let me uh, take you, you know, you mentioned AUKUS. Uh, obviously, um, the, the good news is we have an AUKUS deal. The bad news is we have an AUKUS deal, right? Um Everybody understands the forward deployment of uh, submarines, but it seems as though we're adopting, a, you know, it was a very ambitious plan uh, to start with. Um, our mutual friend, you know, Brian Clark's uh, attitude uh, and your colleague uh, at Hudson, uh, you know, his thing is, hey, let, look, let's shoot at the stars. And if we manage to hit the moon, that's perfectly fine. Um, you know, a lot of concerns about whether, uh, so the forward basing part of it, everybody's got that. The question of supplying up to five Virginia-class attack submarines, a little bit more problematic. Obviously, that would be an immediate um, uh, or, or shorter-term solution, although where these submarines and how they would be built and how they would not impact uh, the U.S. industrial base uh, would be interesting. There is a sense that the United States wants Australia to facilitize that capacity. Um, and in the meantime, Australia would work with the U.K. on a future attack submarines, some of which a common attack submarines, some of which would be built uh, in the United Kingdom and some of which would eventually be built uh, in Australia. You mentioned sticker shock uh, and then the challenge of sustaining this across several American political administrations, uh, to say the very least. Is this a good deal? Is this the right deal? Is it even plausible? And is delivering this capability in the early 40s and beyond actually a little too late? Would it actually have been better to have submarines on a shorter timescale? Well, um, possibly would be better to have on a, on a shorter timescale, but that's uh, sort of a moot point at this one. I, I think the, the three phases of the AUKUS announcement regarding submarines, and we're going to hear pillar two about high technology in the coming weeks, the three pillars, the first one is a done deal in terms of UK and US submarines increasingly operating uh, in Western Australia, and Australia building up the capability capabilities of, uh, of maintaining our submarines there. So that's a, that already is a big win for the AUKUS countries. Secondly, we're clearly going to be moving toward transferring technological capability and know-how and building this up 
uh, with Australia, and and that's a good thing. Now, phases two and three of the submarine deal, do they really uh, spend the money in Canberra on Virginia-class submarines because they're expensive, and there's great debate over this already breaking out across the political spectrum in Australia, including in uh, you know uh, Albanese's Labour Party, um, most notably former Prime Minister Keating viciously attacking it, um, also people on the left who don't like uh, nuclear-powered submarines. And then there are others on the right, uh, including former Prime Minister Turnbull, a moderate, uh, also right. not liking this deal. So they face big opposition about the money. Um, and thirdly, uh, you know, whether they build the SSN AUKUS, as that new class of subs would be called, and deliver that in the 40s and 50s, we're just too far away from that to know for sure. Uh, clearly, lots of uh, lots of obstacles in their way. But I do think um, this is still a very strong partnership. Uh, it's a very good phase one. Let's wait to see what they do on the technology side as well. Um, there's a lot to like about this uh, growing cooperation, which is the main thing of these three countries. And they're open to adding other countries like Korea and you know, in Japan into this uh, deal as well at some point on terms of high technology cooperation. So um, it it is a good partnership. It is a good phase one deal. Um, a lot of work to be done if we're going to get to phase two and three. I still think we should be thinking about how we expand this partnership and include the French in it, uh, which is, I believe, very important, and also include the Japanese in it uh, as well uh, in in some capacity. Uh, I agree, Vago, uh, and I think that and I think that's possible. I think they they will be talking about that. And the French are getting, you know, they were very wounded. Obviously, what happened when this deal was ripped up, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, but they're getting back in the game and they're, uh, you know, a constant geographical player and naval player in the Pacific and, and they're needed. Uh, it, but there, uh, but me... there is one there is one problem. Yeah, go ahead. That is, that, that, uh, I, I totally agree with Patrick, but the problem is the bureaucracy, the technology transfer bureaucracy, because all of this presupposes a degree of openness. And we we've had a longstanding arrangement, supposedly, with both the Brits and the Aussies about technology cooperation, and both of them have complained how little has actually been accomplished. Now, when you talk about bringing in Japan, France, Korea, uh, that just makes it even more difficult. And I think that unless Congress is willing to really open the door for technology cooperation, a lot of what we're promising just may not materialize. Although I have to say it is a remarkably positive step that we're saying that we're going to exhibit this kind of openness with two nations uh, that are just not only Five Eyes partners, but actually very, very close uh, and and dear uh, allies. We've got uh, a couple of minutes left and uh, two very big questions. So I'm going to ask both of you to be uh, somewhat succinct. Dove, I'm going to come to you in a minute to talk about uh, Isaac uh, Herzog, the Israel uh, Israel's president's comments about the prospect of a civil war, uh, given Bibi Netanyahu's judicial reforms or, or, or Supreme Court subjugation, depending on how you want to look at it. But Patrick, very busy week on the rest of Asia, obviously new leadership in some of these roles. We talked about uh, Quinn Gang taking over as foreign minister. Lee Chang uh, is now uh, premier. We have an agreement, as you mentioned, between Seoul and Tokyo, the latest uh, of a extraordinary historic warming of relations uh, between uh, the two countries, kind of uh, and and then we had in the midst of this Pyongyang uh, test out the latest Wasang uh, missile. Kind of walk us through what all of this means uh, and how to be uh, rightly wrapping our mind around it. 
Yeah, a, a lot in a minute. Um, North Korea's ICBM <laughs> launch over Japan, uh, it, you know, is the latest of a series of missile launches. Just in the past week, they've launched 11 missiles on four different occasions uh, total. Uh, and this ICBM is not the last missile launch we're going to see while Freedom Shield exercises are going on, full field exercises between the South Korean and U.S. forces. Um, and I think uh, yet despite that, uh, while President Yoon was in Tokyo meeting with Prime Minister Kishida and the two leaders for the first time that I can remember, you know, from Korea and Japan, looking like they actually enjoyed each other's company and they they were genuinely making political progress. They knew this was good for them, uh, for their for their country's defense. But President Yoon is out on a limb on this. He's already gone as far as he can possibly go on this forced labor deal because the money's coming from uh, South Korean companies in the first instance, and they're, they're going to get voluntary contributions from the Japanese companies. And a lot of Koreans are upset about that. Uh, meanwhile, Japan and Korea, though, are dealing with North Korea and the fact that they want early warning uh, and information uh, sharing, intelligence sharing. Uh, the ICBM just punctuates why they need that. And yet they're also cooperating on Indo-Pacific strategy and on high technology. And that is great. In fact, the Japanese lifted these export controls that were slapped onto South Korea to penalize them four years ago over the maritime dispute. Um, they've lifted them. They're back on the whitelist. That's very good news. And so this is this relationship is now as, as positive as we've seen it in, you know, in, in decades. Uh, and that's good news for the U.S. Meanwhile, uh, Tsang Wen's coming to the United States soon. What, we're going to wait and see what the repercussions are already. China's tried to preempt that by trying to pick off Honduras, one of the 14 diplomatic partners of Taiwan. Um, Paraguay could be next in terms of this queue of what China's trying to do to, to isolate Taiwan. But uh, Tsang Wen will not be isolated. And yet these you know, were only nine months before the election. So a lot's playing out in terms of what's happening with the candidates who are going to be coming through the United States in the next few months looking for uh, sort of support uh, and trying to get reassurance. Um, you know, Eric Garcetti got confirmed as ambassador to India after a 20-month battle. Um, this is good news, given the fact that India is, you know, chairing the G20 this year. Uh, it's a major partner. We're moving ahead with technology. Um, so that's good. So much is happening. Uh, I haven't done an adequate job of, of trying to summarize. I, I think you've done an extraordinary job. Uh, Patrick, uh, and 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 thanks uh, thanks very much. And we've covered an extraordinary amount of ground in this program. Uh, and uh, Dove, you got roughly uh, a minute. Uh, unfortunately, walk us through uh, what Isaac Herzog's uh, extraordinary statement uh, potentially means or doesn't mean, and where are we going? Well, Herzog basically said what a number of people have begun to say, which is this: that country could be going into a civil war. Um, because the, the two sides, the uh, secular and, and traditional Israelis, religiously traditional Israelis on the one hand, and the uh, coalition of uh, expansionist settlers uh, and ultra-religious, and of course that ultra-narcissist Netanyahu who wants to stay out of jail, don't seem to be getting any closer to each other. Uh, Herzog has been uh, leading negotiations. He believes that He's made some progress, but they haven't been able to reach an agreement on how the Supreme Court justices are actually appointed. And uh, when he said what he said, Netanyahu immediately rejected it. And while Herzog is, to his credit, trying to uh, be what presidents are in Israel, which is essentially above politics, Netanyahu seems to be treating him as what he once was, which was leader of the opposition. Uh, and so as long as that continues uh, and unless they, uh, he can broker a deal uh, regarding the appointment of justices, uh, this crisis is going to go on.
And in the meantime, they're pushing ahead to get this uh, law passed in the next few weeks. Uh, indeed, uh, it's going to be absolutely uh, fascinating. Uh, gentlemen, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, always appreciate your time, especially given uh, geographic separation and time zones. Uh, Dove in particular, thanks for joining us from sunny Sulaymaniyah. Uh, look forward, uh, wishing you all a very good weekend, a very happy St. Patrick's Day uh, and a great week and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks so much. And a very special thank you to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible and our programs every day possible. And join us on Sunday for the Business Roundtable with our usual cast of characters. Thanks so very much again. Hope everybody has a great weekend.